Well, Merry Christmas, my friends. Uh, this is a wonderful day of, of word and sacrament. Uh, this morning, you are invited, as always, to gather around the word of God. And this evening, you're invited to return and gather around the Lord's table as we, we take communion together this evening. I want to encourage you, if you're coming this evening, to, to get here early. I imagine this is going to be a, a packed house this evening for the candle lighting service. It's one of my favorite services we have here. And um, uh, this morning, we're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. And, and every verse of Matthew's gospel proclaims the glory of Christ. And today, this is really no exception. Today, we're going to witness uh, the transfiguration. And, and, and here's what I believe. I believe that this really is a fitting scripture for Christmas Eve. I, I really, really do. Because this, this is the time of year where we go around and um, we're giving Christmas gifts. And at the same time, we are trying to remind ourselves that the greatest gift of all was born in Bethlehem. And there's kind of this, you know, this back and forth. We give gifts. We're trying to remember what the, what, what, why we give gifts. What is the great gift here? And, and like a gift, I don't know if you recognize this, but the baby in Bethlehem is wrapped. And uh, we understand from Scripture that Jesus is wrapped in something called swaddling clothes. You all remember that? Look with me at Luke 2.2. 2. It says this, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Uh, now, it's funny. I used to think that swaddling clothes were some sign of poverty, right? That, that, that it was like, look at, at poor Mary and Joseph. All they have are these rags to wrap the Messiah. That's what I used to think that the swaddling clothes was about. But, but I don't think that's the case now. I, I don't think that swaddling clothes are a sign of poverty. History will show us that at this time, Almost all children were swaddled, uh, the rich and the poor. And do you know what it means to, to swaddle a child? Um, when a child is born, they would wrap the child in, in tight cloth strips, and it, it provides some protection for the baby. Uh, it, it binds their limbs, and it, it kind of holds them tight. We even do this now. We have kind of blankets that are built for that. And I think it was back in the, the 70s where this kind of came to be again. They, really, they recognized the, the protection it provided for infants. Um, so, but being wrapped in swaddling clothes, it's, it isn't about the uniqueness of Jesus' poverty. It's about the commonness of Jesus' frailty. Right? He, he's wrapped up just like any other baby would be, just like any other baby before him. He is, he's bound, and he's unable to move his, his arms or his legs. And Jesus is wrapped up, if you think about it, in a way, and this is an illustration that's not perfect, so bear with me. He's wrapped up not just in swaddling clothes, but in a way he's wrapped up in humanity. Now, now in, on one sense, that's a terrible illustration because it does not get to the, the full nature of who Christ is. Jesus is not God-wrapped in some human shell. That's not, that's not what we understand the incarnation. We understand that, that Jesus is fully human and he's fully God, but there is something about the incarnation where Jesus empties himself through human form. There is something of, of Jesus' eternal glory which is hidden there in that moment. Look, look with me at Philippians 2, 6 through 7, and, and read what it says about Jesus emptying himself. It says, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death upon a cross. 
And so what I want to say to you today is that the, the incarnation here, you know, when we talk about the birth of Jesus, it's, it's a great act of humility. The language of Paul, he says that Jesus emptied himself by taking human form. And when I think about Jesus in the swaddling clothes being all tied together, it just brings it home all the more for me as, as the height of the imagery of Christ emptying himself of his glory. Now, now here's where I'm going. In today's text, when, when we read today, you are going to get to see the fullness of Christ's glory. You're going to get to see Jesus in all of his glory, just a glimpse for now of what he has always been and forever will be. And so I want to get to reading about the transfiguration out of Matthew 17, 1 through 13. I want to invite you to stand in reverence of the word of God read. And before we read, let's, let's have a word of prayer. Father, um, we thank you for your scripture, which reveals to us uh, your will and, and your son and so much about your character, Father. And so uh, this Christmas Eve, as we come together, speak to us by your word. We pray this. And the church said, amen. All right, let's, let's begin reading together. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he was still speaking when a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces, and they were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Church, the grass may wither and the flowers may fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. And this is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So here's our, here's our context. Here's the context by which this story is happening. Uh, last week or a couple weeks ago, we had the great confession of Peter. And, and then last week we saw that Peter, he got rebuked by Jesus because he tried to, to tell Jesus that Jesus didn't have to follow the eternal plan for redemption, that Jesus didn't have to suffer. And, and you remember, you have Jesus saying, you know, kind of get behind me, Satan, there. Um, and, and Jesus shared that he has these four historic musts that he must do. He, he's beginning to spend time with his disciples, and he's beginning to show them the plan of redemption. And he shows them, uh, Matthew 16, 21, what he must do. Four musts. So look with me at Matthew 16, 21. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests 
and scribes and be killed, and on the third day he must be raised. So the four musts are he must go to Jerusalem, he must suffer at the hand of the religious leaders is number two. Number three is he must be killed. And the last one is that on the fourth day he must what? He must rise. And, and Peter hates the idea of all this because Peter uh, doesn't want Jesus to have to suffer, and, and he, he tries to stop Jesus. And you remember, Jesus tells him, Peter, get behind me, you're, you're a hindrance. And, and he goes on to say, like, if you would come after me, you must pick up your cross and follow me. And, and um, so I wasn't going to baptize her again. <laughs> I promised her. That is where we pick up our reading today, okay? So let's read our first verse of, of chapter 17. You ready? And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, what, what's happening here is that Matthew is setting the stage. He's, he's giving us the setting, and you're going to get three different details. The first detail that you're going to get is this one that says, after six days. Now, Matthew is very intentional with details. He doesn't just throw them out there, and he rarely at all mentions time, which might ask you, or you might ask yourself, why does he, why does he include this after six days? Because it doesn't really fit in. Let me, let me give you my suggestion here. I think that Matthew is trying to point us towards Moses. And, and here's, what I, here, here's why I say that. Okay, if we go back to Exodus 24, 15 through 16, here's what it's going to say. Then Moses went up on the mountain, so it's very similar to what's happening here. Uh, Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it, how long? Six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses in the midst of the cloud. So Moses goes up on, on a mountain to experience the glory of the Lord, and Moses waits six days before the Lord calls him, and eventually the glory of the Lord is revealed. And there's, there's people who are below, and they're looking up on the mountain, and it seems to them like the mountain is on fire. Doesn't it feel like, it does to me, that Matthew is foreshadowing as he talks about six days later. That detail is just foreshadowing. The second detail of the story is that we're going to go up onto a high mountain, right? And, and if, you're, uh, if you're reading along in Matthew's gospel, what you're going to recognize is that, that mountains are serious business. Like, like we're doing mountains everywhere in Matthew's gospel, right? The, you have the Sermon on the Mountain, chapter 5 through 7. In chapter 14, Jesus has been waiting to go up on this high mountain and be alone with the Father. In 15, he heals the multitudes on the mountain. 24 through 25, he teaches on the Mount of Olives. In, in Matthew 26, the Great Commission is on a mountain. Okay, so Big things happen on, mount, in, on top of mountains in Matthew's gospel. And the final detail that we have in verse 1 is that Jesus is going to bring with him three men, Peter, James, and his brother John. And I don't know why Jesus chooses just three of the disciples to reveal this to. Maybe these three need extra instruction. Maybe it, maybe it has something to do with the fact that these guys have a a unique call to lead in the early church. These are the guys who are going to really stand out in leadership along with Paul as the key leaders of the early church. Also, let me, let me just another detail of why it's three. In both the Old and New Testament, what is the standard for the establishment of, of the witness of evidence? So, so how many witnesses must there be to establish evidence? It's always two to three. Right? And, and if you're looking for where you can find that, in, in the Old Testament, it's Deuteronomy 17.6. 
In the New Testament, it's Matthew 18, 16. But in both cases, it's kind of talking about justice. And if, if you're going to bring an accusation or you're going to testify to something, you need two to three witnesses. So here you have, if the standard for witnesses of evidence is two to three men, these three men are going to be witnesses legally to Christ's glory. Six days, three men, and a high mountain. Let's go on to verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. That Greek word there for transfigured is metamorpho. It's obviously where we get our word for metamorphosis. It means literally a change of form. Jesus isn't changing his essence, right? He is changing his appearance. When a caterpillar has a metamorphosis, it's not changing its DNA. It's not changing what it's made out of. It's simply altering its form. So what form is Jesus changing between? Well, R.C. Sproul is going to say it this way. He's going to say that the cloak of humanity that veiled his true glory was removed, and his glory became visible. You see, Jesus didn't cease to be fully human and, and, and fully God. He was, he was always fully human and, and fully God. He just allowed for the full glory of his deity to shine through. And, and here's what that looked like. It appeared as the brightest light that you could imagine. The brightest light you could imagine. And, and, and the way that they talk about it is they, they can just compare it to the sun, right? Because that's the, the brightest light they had seen. And the first place they noticed it was upon his face. The only way they could describe it was, was as if you were looking at the sun. And, and I don't know, you know, I think, I think our family plans on going to Texas later on in the year because there's going to be a solar eclipse. And the way you look at those things, I don't know if you've ever had those special glasses that are so dark you can look at the eclipse. Because the danger is, is if you look at the sun with your eyes, you just burn the retina right out of your head. Now, can I tell you something amazing? This is a temporary revealing of what Christ looks like eternally, right? Except for those very brief moments in the incarnation for which he veils his glory, this is what Jesus always looks like. This, this brightness, this glory is what he always looks like. So if you could look up into glory and you could see the Father in heaven and you, and you look at, the, at his right hand and you see the sun set right beside him, do you know how bright the heavens would be? How much light would be there? John gets a glimpse into heaven to see this glory in, in the book of Revelations. And he describes it in Revelations chapter 1. Look at, look at Revelation 1.16. He says this, In his right hand he held stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. It's like you can't even look at it. What makes us think that we can look upon the face of Jesus there? In case that you maybe think this is just symbolism and it's not really a brightness, look how it's further described in the 22nd chapter of Revelation. Revelation 22.5, and what's happening is John is describing the new heavens and the new earth. And he says this, And night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp of sun, for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. So, so wrap your head around that idea that the light of the triune God will flood the new heavens in such a way that there's no night. Isn't that crazy? So, so in the transfiguration, 
Matthew describes the light of Jesus' face first. It's like his first, you see his face. But the light's coming, um, it's coming from within him, and it's coming out all over his body. And it has the effect of turning, the light that's coming from inside him turns his clothes white. It has like a bleaching effect, and, you know, or maybe it's, it's passing through them in such a way that it just whitens out all of his clothes. Every garment that he's, he's wearing is, is the brightest white that you could imagine. I don't think the garments are transfigured. I think Jesus is. And so if you, were to, if you were to take a floodlight, like the brightest floodlight you had, and you were to hold a piece of paper in front of it, what happens to that paper? Think about that in the way that, that, that Jesus' clothes were glowing from the glory that he was admitting. I, all I can say to you, Christian, is this. Behold your God. Tonight, we're going to get together, and we're going to, uh, lift our little candles, right? We're going to lift our little candles up, and together as God's people, we're going to sing Silent Night, Holy Night, Son of God, Love's Pure Light, Radiant Beams from Thy Holy Face, with the dawn of redeeming grace, Jesus, Lord at Thy birth. And people will be uh, we'll be singing and singing of the glory of Christ. And people are, I, I guarantee you, people are going to get teary-eyed because the candles are so beautiful. I want to tell you this. Those candles tonight, they are a cheap symbol of what is truly beautiful. Don't worship cheap symbols tonight. Tonight, as we light our candles and we hold them up, draw your mind to the glory of Christ. Back to the mountain. Let's get back there. Verse 3. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. So there's two more people there that, that appear, Moses and Elijah. So here's my question, because I've thought about this a lot. Why do you think it's Moses, Moses and Elijah? Why not Abraham and David? That would have been two good people to show up, right? So why? Why Moses and Elijah? And I think I'm going to give to you two equally beautiful reasons why I think it might be Moses and Elijah, and both of them are good. So um, I, don't, I don't have to, time to give you uh, thorough examinations, but I'll be brief. Uh, reason number one, all right? Reason number one, it's Moses and Elijah. Moses was the one who was given the law, right? And oftentimes when we, uh, you know, it's, it's actually referred to as the Mosaic law, and we talk about it. Um, and, and so oftentimes when we talk about Moses, we see him as a representative of the law. Well, what then would Elijah represent? Well, traditionally, people would say that he represents the prophets. And so you have Jesus here in the transfiguration joined by ones who would represent the law and the prophets, right? And, and we see how, how Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And, and what do you think that, that they're talking about? What do you think that, that, that Moses and Elijah and Jesus are there talking about? Make no mistake, I just want to start by saying this. Moses and Elijah are worshiping the Christ. So some sort of that is their conversation. They, if they're coming before the, the glory of Jesus, they're, they're worshiping. But I want to show you something else that they are discussing. Ready? Luke 9, 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of, okay, here it is, ready? This is what they're talking about. And spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Do you see how awesome this is? In the transfiguration, 
Moses and Elijah come down and they're talking to Jesus about what? About the cross. They're talking to Jesus about going to Jerusalem. Remember, Peter's all out there going, you don't have to go, you don't have to go. Satan in the garden was like, you don't have to go, you don't have to go. And, and he's saying, get behind me, you're a hindrance to me. Well, who comes to him? The law and the prophets. And they counsel with him. And they say to him things like, my assumption is this. They say to him things like, Jesus, this is what you were born for. This is the end of the curse of the law. This is the fulfillment of all the prophets. Now, another possibility we see for why it's Moses and Elijah, that, that was a really good one, and I like that one. Um, but another one that's equally as beautiful as this. Remember when Moses went up on the mountain in Exodus 33, and, and Moses is going to meet with God. Do you remember what Moses asks to see? Verse, uh, let's look at Exodus 33, 18. Okay, Exodus 33, 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. And, and what does God say? Do you remember this? Uh, verse 20. But God said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Right? And so what happens is God says, I'll put, a, I'll put you in a cleft in a rock, and I'll, I'll cover it with my hand as I pass. And after I pass back by, I'll re, you kind of remove my hand, and you'll get to see a little bit of my back. you remember that? Remember that? I want you to hold that thought. And I want to show you Elijah now. Uh, Jezebel is seeking to kill Elijah. This is the story. And Elijah's held up in a cave. Now, uh, the Lord comes to Elijah, and if you remember, he comes to him, and he comes like in the fire and in the earthquake, and then finally he comes and he's in the still, small whisper. You remember that? And, uh, and why, what does Elijah do when the Lord comes near? This, this is what Elijah does when the Lord comes near. 1 Kings 19.13. And when Elijah heard it, this is what he does. He wraps his face in his cloak, and he, would out, and he went out and he stood at the entrance of the cave. Meaning what? That, that Elijah knew that he could not look upon God's glory and live. I mean, he's, he, he understands what, what happened with Moses. He knows he's got to cover his face with some kind of veil. Now, here's my point. This is part of both these men's story. We want to see the face of God, but we cannot. How amazing is it now? That these two men get to stand before Jesus and finally gaze at the glory of God. I've heard people say that, man, it is so unfair that Moses did not get to enter the promised land. Well, guess what? Here he stands now in the promised land, Moses, having a conversation with his Savior, looking face to face upon the glory of God. How amazing is that? And listen, friends, I just want to, I want to be real clear this morning. I'm not even attempting to make this sermon about you. I'm not even attempting to make this sermon about your life. This sermon is worship. My worship, your worship, the worship of Moses and Elijah, Peter, James, and John, we're all beholding the glory of Christ revealed. Amen? There you go. And then all of a sudden, Peter decides that he needs to say something. Unbelievable. And he starts strong. He does. Peter starts strong. Verse 4, he says this. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, which, yeah, I mean, that, that's a good, good start. And then he says, it's good that we're here. And like, I'm like, there you go, Peter. That's stop talking, right? Stop talking. And he just keeps going. And he keeps going. He says, uh, uh, he's kind of 
blurts out word salads. What kind of happens next? If you wish, I'll make tents here, you know, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. I mean, gosh, Peter means well. But once again, he just, he can't read the room. He got these three men standing before, these two guys standing before their Savior, and they're counseling him upon the cross, or counseling him about the need to go to Jerusalem. No one is staying on this mountain. Jesus is going to the cross. And Peter's blabbering about tents, and he's, he's mid-sentence. Did you, did you catch this part? He is mid-sentence. It says, while he was still talking, God cuts him off. And it's probably a gracious cutoff. Look, look at verse 5, ready? It says this, he was still speaking when, <laughs> behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Peter's still blabbing about tents. When, when God the Father appears in glory and the glory of Jesus was shining through his clothes, but now the Father's glory is shining through the clouds and it makes the whole cloud glow. And for the second time in Matthew's gospel, because it happened once at Jesus' baptism, and it happens again here, uh, the Father appears and speaks about Jesus. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And, th and then what? He says, listen to him. I hope this isn't lost on us, that, that while Peter is still suggesting all kinds of nonsense, God's glory thunders to the crowd and says, listen to him. Peter, and some of, I gotta be honest, some of us would really benefit from this experience. Some of you would. Um, we have all kinds of ideas of our own. We have all kinds of notions about morality, and we're easily confused about the truth. So, so consider this your opportunity this morning to live vicariously through Peter. Um, the Father wants you to know that Jesus is his son with whom he is well pleased. Now, stop rationalizing and just listen to Jesus. Okay, just listen to the words of Jesus. And I'm, I'm really not sure what, what tone the Father spoke with, right? I, there's a lot of interpretation in, in implying a tone, but, but, but it is interesting to see how the disciples responded to whatever tone the Father spoke in. Uh, it says this in verse 6, ready? When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and what? And they were terrified. Nothing that I can say this morning will suffice to communicate the awe, the glory, the terror, and the majesty of the glory of God the Father here. They stand before not just the glory of the Son, but also the glory of the Father. And the voice the Father is bringing them uh, when he speaks to their proper posture flat on their face before the triune God. Can you imagine, I just, can you imagine the sensory overload if you were one of these three here? From, from the, the overwhelming amount of light to the booming of the voice of God, I, I, I just imagine, and I promise that it's just some speculation here, that these guys are on their hands and knees and they're covering their ears and they're covering their eyes because the light threatens to bleed through their, their, their um, the eye covers. What do we call those people? Eyelids. Thank you. <laughs> eye covers. I knew. I knew. I was like, they're not lashes. They're not brows. They're eyelids. Amen. 
I don't know if you can clench anymore. There's kind of clenched up sensory overload. And this is what happens next. Verse 7 and 8. But Jesus came and, and he touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The experience of God's glory, which had the disciples terrified and laying on their bellies, it ends suddenly. It's just, it stops. And the blinding light is once again veiled by the humanity of Jesus. And they still haven't mustered the courage to, to lift their heads and peek. They're still underneath it. And Jesus walks over there to them, and he touches them, and he says, Rise, you, you don't have to be scared. And they look up, and everybody else is gone. And it's just this ordinary-looking Jesus that they've been following. And Jesus begins to lead them back down the mountain. He's like, come on, let's go down the mountain. Verse 9, it says this. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Why does Jesus do this from time to time? Why does he... uh, Why does he instruct people from time to time not to tell anyone who he is or what he's done maybe to heal them? Remember, if you're following along at home, Jesus did the same thing after Peter's great confession. Peter said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And basically what Jesus says back to Peter is, you know, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. Your Father in heaven did, but don't tell anybody. That's basically what Jesus says. And what I would suggest to you is this is called the messianic secret. And the logic here is that if, if Rome knew that Jesus was the, the, the Messiah, they would probably come and try to kill him because the false rumors were that the Messiah was going to be a political uh, revolutionary, right? And if the Jewish leaders over here found out that Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah, they would come and they would kill him too because it was a strong sense of blasphemy. And, and the one thing I think we need to understand is, we don't get this wrong, is that Jesus himself has his face towards Jerusalem. He's going to the cross. He's going to give up his life. But he's doing it on his own term, in his own timing. And so he asks at different places, different people to conceal the truth of his identity. Until when? Until the resurrection, right? So what I want to suggest to you today is this is actually a great Christmas Eve scripture. That after six days, Jesus took three men up upon a tall mountain. And he revealed to these three men his true glory, that they might be his witnesses at his resurrection. The same glory that, that, that blinded Saul on the road to Damascus, that same glory that lights the new heavens and the new earth, the same glory as the Father. And a glorified Jesus is going to meet on this mountain with who? With, with Moses and with Elijah. And as I look at this, I think, what a gift uh, for Moses, what a gift for Elijah to see God face to face in his glory. And what do they do while they're together? They, they talk to Jesus about the, the law and the prophets, and they encourage Jesus to do what he was born to do, to go to Jerusalem, to suffer, to die, and to be resurrected. The command of Jesus was to tell no one about what they had seen until the resurrection But after the resurrection, if you remember, Jesus unleashed his disciples to go to all the nations proclaiming the glory of Christ. On Christmas Eve, we the church 
Proclaim that Jesus is the light of the world, slain for the sins of his people. Behold the unbound glory of your God. May his light shine forever. I look forward to lighting that Christ candle tonight and then afterwards to share that light with you as we turn the lights of the church down and and the whole church is filled with that image of the glory of God. Uh, We have read together Matthew 17, 1 through 13. Will you join me as we pray this morning? Uh, Father, what an unbelievable story of the unveiling of the glory of Christ Jesus the Son. Father, if there were, if there were anything I could go back in Scripture and see, it, it might be this. I, I, in my mind's eye, I, I just imagine um, how overwhelmed you would be to see Jesus in his full glory and how, how blessed Peter was to see this. And the the boldness you would have after seeing that to go forth and proclaim the goodness of God, having seen him full in his glory. God, so I pray that that same boldness might fill us today as we live vicariously through these men and and through your inspired word that we got a view today of the glory of Jesus that encourages and edifies our soul. We pray all this uh, in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, and the church said, amen. Amen.